walking the Jesus road. You know, fishing is hard work. It's one thing to fish for fun on the weekends. It's sometimes, uh, or something else, to fish for uh, a living every day of the week. So here's Peter and Andrew and James and John fishing on the Sea of Galilee year-round. They either sold their fish locally or the fish were salt-cured and sold as far away as Spain. You wouldn't get rich that way, but a hard-working man could take care of his family. Now it's morning, and Peter and the others are tired, and they're exhausted. They're probably in a foul mood because they've had a rough night. Fishermen like to say that your worst day fishing is better than your best day at the office, Uh, but I'm not sure Peter would have agreed with that at that moment. Now they're busy mending the nets, which was time-consuming work, made more difficult by the frustration of knowing that they had really caught nothing all night. And Luke 5, 1 through 11, tells us how Jesus called Peter to be one of his disciples. The progress of this story is very simple. First, Peter caught fish. Then Jesus caught Peter. And then Peter caught other people. It all begins with a frustrated fisherman cleaning his nets after a long, hard night. Hear these words from Luke's Gospel. One day as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Now go out where it is deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. Master, Simon replied, we worked hard all last night, didn't catch a thing. But if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. And this time their nets were so full of fish they began to tear. Shout for help brought their partners in the other boat, and soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh Lord, please leave me, I'm too much of a sinner to be around you. For he was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught, as were the others with him. His partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. Jesus replied to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. And as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. When Jesus asks Peter if he can borrow his boat, Peter immediately agrees. He knows Jesus and admires him greatly. He he is like so many in the church today. He's already become a follower of sorts, but until now, he's never really made that wholehearted commitment. So when Jesus wants to use his boat for a pulpit, Peter's honored to grant his request. How fitting it is. Jesus comes to the scene of Peter's failure and uses that to preach the word of God. He takes the ordinary and he makes it sacred. He uses a simple fishing boat as a setting for a mighty miracle to happen. Nothing in this story happens by chance. All of it is meant to teach an important truth. God still prepares us for his call by allowing us to endure personal failure. And until we sense our need of him, we will not be ready to follow him. After all, if we think we're self-sufficient, 
Why do we need God? We must be stripped of our self-confidence before we can be greatly used by God. Peter must be broken before he's ready to respond to the call of Christ. Now, the words of Jesus contain both a command and a promise. It's not as if Jesus is saying, let's go out into the deep water and put down the nets and let's just see what happens. Jesus is promising that if Peter will obey, he will catch fish. And I'm sure that after a long night of fruitless fishing, that must have been hard to believe. We can learn some useful lessons from this story. God never gives foolish commands, though it may look foolish at the time. God intends to bless those who obey him without hesitation. And God's greatest miracles usually require our cooperation. There were certain reasons uh, for Peter to be skeptical. After all, the experience of the previous night seemed conclusive. As a professional fisherman, Peter knew the lake. He knew that sometimes even the best fishermen get skunked. He could have said, sorry, Lord, but it's not worth my trouble. I'm the expert here, Lord. What's Peter really going to do? I love the way Peter puts it. He says, but if you say so. There's, these are some great words. Across the centuries, believers have found these simple words to be their divine marching orders. Conditions may be bleak and the world may fight against us. Certain circumstances may overwhelm us. Fears threaten to submerge us. But God speaks and his followers say, Lord, but if you say so. And off we go in obedience to Christ. See, the Bible is filled with stories of obedience. Middle-aged Abraham set off across the desert with no more than, but if you say so, God. Noah built an ark in the face of an unbelieving world with no more than, okay, if you say so. Moses defied Pharaoh, looking to heaven and saying, but if you say so. Joshua marched around Jericho day after day with these words on his heart, but if you say so. And then Peter added, but if you say so, I will let down the nets. We still have a part to do. The fish aren't going to jump in the boat all by themselves. We still have to do what we have to do. We've got to go to work. We've got to stay on the diet. We've got to go to the meeting. We've got to go to the counselor. We've got to share the gospel. We've got to do our homework. We've got to write that term paper. We've got to get the project done. You see, there's always work for us to do. And I believe that there are many answers to prayers that await only one thing, and that's our obedience. Put down your net into the deep water, do your part, and then God does his part. The author Lloyd, uh, Lloyd Ogilvie says, uh, says it this way, without God, we can't. Without us, he won't. This is what fishermen dream about. They spend a lifetime fishing in hopes that maybe someday something like this will happen to them. What a sight it was. So many fish came into the nets that they began to break. And the men end up filling both boats with so many fish that the boats begin to sink. Now just think about that. Two overloaded boats with 
fish flopping everywhere, slowly coming to shore. This is the biggest catch ever, and it happens not during normal fishing hours at night, but in the middle of the day. Please note that the fish were there all along. It's not as if Jesus created a bunch of fish on the spur of the moment. Those fish were in the water the night before. Peter just couldn't find them. But when Jesus is in the boat, everything changes. Everything is happening according to God's plan. He allowed Peter to fail so he would learn what he could do with Jesus' help. Now, there's a simple moral to this part of the story. Empty nets without him. Full nets with him. This part of the story has always intrigued me. Why would Peter beg Jesus to leave? Maybe because for most of us, failure is easier to handle than success. When we lose, we always have an excuse. It wasn't the right time. You know, the boss hated us. The job stunk. She didn't love me. I didn't need the money. The market wasn't just right. The refs were against us. The coach called the wrong play. We were cheated. I wasn't trying to win. My head wasn't in the game. And on and on and on. We have lots of excuses. See, losing is easy. Winning is much harder. What if God blew away all our known categories and gave us success beyond our wildest dreams? What if he let us fail miserably so that he could give us overwhelming success later? See, not everyone can handle that kind of success. Most people can't. We're ready for medium success. We're not ready for outrageous success. Like most of us, Peter thought in man-sized categories, not God-sized miracles. He He had room in his mind for anything that he could handle all on his own. But when Jesus got involved, the results blew his circuits. In the providence of God, uh, it drove him to his knees in a moment of desperate prayer. Now, the scene here is reminiscent of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah's reaction upon seeing the Lord, remember, high and holy and lifted up. And Isaiah said, Woe to me! I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. See, once Peter realized who Jesus was, the true Son of God from heaven, he saw himself in a new light. To see God is to see ourselves as we really are. And sometimes that vision is almost too much for us to handle. Peter could not stand the contrast between the purity and the power of Christ and his own sinfulness. And here is this man who has been deeply changed on the inside. His pride has been buried and burned away by the transforming vision of Jesus, the Christ. I find it significant that Jesus seems to ignore uh, Peter's desperate confession of his unworthiness. Jesus knows the truth about Peter, and he knew it all along. And what matters is that Peter now knows the truth about himself. With his pride stripped away, he is now ready to serve the Lord. There's an important lesson here for us to ponder. When we truly encounter Jesus, 
we will never, ever be the same again. No one can meet Jesus and walk away unchanged. We may end up closer to God or we may harden our hearts, but no one ever meets Jesus and stays the same way as they were before. In Peter's case, his confession became part of his testimony. He knew he was a sinner, and he wasn't ashamed to admit it. God can use a person who knows their weakness and doesn't try to hide it. Let me introduce you to a one-sentence prayer that I believe has the power to change our life. And it's this. Lord, do things in me and through me that I'm not used to. Say that with me. Lord, do things in me and through me that I'm not used to. That prayer is an invitation to the Lord of the universe to enter our little world and shake it up in any way he chooses. It's a way of saying, Lord, here's my life. I've got it ordered the way I want. Here's my wife, here's my children, here's my husband, here's my church, here's my friends, here's my place in the world, here's all the stuff I own, Lord. I've got it all laid out. It's neat, tidy. But I'm inviting you to come into my world and rearrange anything you like if it'll be more effective for your kingdom. Let me just warn you that if you ever do dare to pray that prayer, you'd better buckle up because God will take you up on that prayer. He'll move you from where you are to where he wants you to be, and things may start happening in your life. That's always been God's method. He wants, when he wants to shake up the world, first he finds a man or a woman and begins to shake them up, and then when they are shaken up, he uses them to shake the world. Peter proves the point. God is, God's will is always good, and it's always, but it's not always comfortable. And it's certainly not predictable. One day you're catching fish, the next day you're catching people. One day you're on the boat, the next day you're following Jesus down some dusty road. One day you're arguing about where to cast your net, the next day you're arguing with some Pharisees. One day you're washing the fish smell out of your robes, the next day you're watching Jesus raise a man's daughter from the dead. That's what I mean when I say God will mess up your life in a good way. So what's the takeaway for us in this story? Let me offer a couple of ideas. First, new life often comes in a totally unexpected way. Peter has no idea that his whole life is about to change. And that's usually how God works. We're just going through life, you know, as we know it, business as usual, doing our thing. Suddenly, the Lord intervenes and he redirects our steps. And my own experience has been that you can't predict this in advance. As Jesus pointed out in John 3, 8, the Spirit blows wherever it wishes. You never know when the call will come to launch out into the deep water. Second, new life often comes in the course of daily obedience. You know, fishermen fish, that's what they do. In the first century, that meant going out into the Sea of Galilee during the night, casting your nets into the water, fishing all night, 
coming ashore at daybreak, when the text says that Peter and the others were cleaning their nets, it means that the long night was over. They were taking care of their nets, uh, their nets so that they could you know, go fishing when nighttime came again. Fishermen fish. Teachers teach. Singers sing. Cooks cook. And on and on it goes for us. What, where do you begin in discovering, where do we begin in discovering the will of God? in our life. Do what you already know to be the will of God in your present situation. The way you discover God's will for the future is to do what you know to be the will of God right now. So many of us live for those high mountaintop experiences, for those emotional moments, for those times when the clouds seem to part and God you know, is so real to us almost as if we could reach out and touch him. And when we say, God, show me your will for me, for my life, what, what we mean is, Lord, give me some great feeling, some great insight, some spiritual revelation. And God says, I've already shown you what's my will. <laughs> now just get up and go do it. But here's the third point. New life often comes only after the small step of obedience. Jesus first asked Peter for the use of his boat as a kind of floating pulpit to address the crowds and gather on the shore. Uh, that was fine with Peter, who was busy cleaning his nets. Uh, it was a small thing, really, but that small step of obedience led to the miracle that changed Peter's life. You never know when those, one of those great miracles is just around the corner, but they're more likely to come as we travel on this pathway of daily obedience. Having agreed to let Jesus use his boat as a floating pulpit, Jesus now challenges Peter to take an even greater step of faith, let down the nets for a catch. So first we obey in the small things, and out of that nitty-gritty of daily obedience, we discover a greater challenge that's looming before us. A few years ago, I heard the story of a man by the name of Charlie Riggs and his favorite prayer. After he committed his life to Christ, Riggs was being discipled by a young man named Lorne Sanny, who in turn was being discipled by a guy named Dawson Trotman, founder of the Navigators, which you may know is a parachurch organization that focuses on Bible study and other spiritual disciplines. So Charlie wanted to grow in Christ, but he was a bit rough around the edges, and Sandy wrote to Trotman telling him that Charlie Riggs was the only man he was working with, but he felt discouraged by the progress they were making. Just stay with your guy, Trotman wrote back. You'll never know, you never know what God might do with him. So Lauren Sandy continued to work with Charlie Riggs, teaching him about memorizing scripture, teaching him uh, how to teach others about Jesus, and a few years passed, and Billy Graham uh, was just beginning his ministry. It was the 1950s. And you remember the Navigators joined with the Graham Crusade to handle the follow-up of their converts in some of those early crusades. And on the eve of the New York Crusade, 1957, the general director suddenly had to be replaced. Who could they get at the last minute? Well, the chairman suggested... Charlie Riggs. But Billy Graham wondered if he could really handle the job. I didn't, I didn't think he could do it. But I had this peace 
that Charlie so depended on the Holy Spirit that I knew the Lord could do it through him, Graham said. Charlie Riggs got the job, and the New York Crusade became a model for many of the Crusades that would follow in later years. Charlie Riggs retired after many, many years of effective service for the Lord. What was his secret? How could a man with so little formal training rise to such a high position and hold it for so long? And here was the answer. He said, I always ask the Lord to put me in over my head. That way, when I had a job to do, either the Lord had to help me or I was sunk. God delighted to answer that prayer time and time again. He put Charlie Riggs in over his head, and then he bailed him out. So here's my challenge today for every Christ follower who wants to become a difference maker for Jesus Christ. Let's take Charlie Riggs' prayer as our own. Lord, put me in over my head. It's always safer for us to stay in the shallow water. That's where we can feel the bottom under our feet, right? But the real challenge is to jump in where the water comes up over our head. For Peter and the other disciples, following Christ meant leaving behind an old life, including the incredible catch of fish that they had just caught. Giving up their boats, giving up their nets, giving up their livelihood, and following Christ into an unknown future. I think it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who described it this way, they must burn their boats and plunge into absolute insecurity in order to learn the demand and the gift of following Christ. Letting go must always, always come first. Anything that hinders our walk with Christ has to go. Even some good things must go in order that better things can come. We can't have it both ways. The word for followed means to walk the same road. That's what a disciple does. We walk the same road as Jesus. We get on the road with Jesus and, it fo and follow wherever it leads. No guarantees, no deals, no special promises. A disciple walks that road every day following in the master's steps. So don't be afraid to follow Jesus. You'll never regret starting down the Jesus road. You'll only regret if you waited so long to do it. Are you ready to follow Jesus wherever he leads? That's what he wants from each of us. Let's pray. God, you call us to leave our places of comfort. You invite us into unchartered waters of faith, to wander off our predictable paths, to follow you into the unpredictable footsteps of your kingdom, to leave the comfort of our homes, to accompany you into the uncomfortable neighborhoods around us that we usually avoid. You promise to be with us always when we follow in obedience, so we give you thanks that you are a calling God, a God who calls always to dangerous new places. Lord, as we wait in our simple, sometimes crazy, and constantly uncertain lives, speak to us. Speak to us of that hope which is our anchor, of that peace which is our rock, and of that grace which is our refuge. And we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord.